This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, half a billion vaccine doses have been distributed around the world. How USAID is combating the global COVID-19 pandemic. And how one doctor at the VA is using 3D printing technology to replicate organs and body parts to improve the lives of veterans. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The U.S. has just sent half a billion free COVID vaccines around the world with more on the way. Over 110 countries in every region of the globe have received American vaccines. Jeremy Kanondike is the executive director of the USAID COVID-19 Task Force. Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So tell us about the creation of the COVID-19 Task Force and how it fits into the mission of USAID. Well, USAID's mission is fundamentally <clears throat> to show American values and American support uh, by providing assistance to those who need it overseas. And so, you know, what we're doing on COVID is a really natural, uh, even quintessential expression of our mission, our mandate uh, as the U.S. Agency for International Development. So we have been providing support to countries in need really since the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And of course, over the um, over the past year, as vaccines have uh, have come onto the scene, we've been working to provide those vaccines and also help countries not just to receive the doses, but to turn those doses into vaccinations, which is really the challenge as we as we uh, head into the uh, 2022. And how does this effort benefit the American taxpayer? Well, fundamentally, the the greatest risks to the uh, the success of the COVID response domestically are now from variants that emerge overseas. And so, you know, we saw Delta emerge from an undervaccinated population in India uh, last spring before India had had uh, achieved large uh, large scale vaccination coverage. We saw Omicron more recently emerge from undervaccinated populations in Southern Africa. And as we look to future variants, they are most likely to emerge from these populations that have not yet reached high levels of vaccine coverage. The, the best um, guess that where Omicron emerged, it was among a population, probably an individual who had a long-term COVID infection, who was immunocompromised, so their body couldn't fight off the infection. So uh, supporting populations like that, making sure they have access to vaccines, supporting them with testing and antivirals so that they can further shorten the, the length of the infections that they might have, that will that's the probably the greatest thing we can do right now to reduce the risk of future variants. So this task force, Jeremy, stresses a whole-of-government approach. How are you working with other federal agencies to achieve this mission? Well, the, the the power of what the federal government can do when we're really hitting all our cylinders is is immense. So we are working with partners from the Centers for Disease Control with their overseas immunization experts. We are working with partners from uh, the, the PEPFAR program, that's the, the U.S. government's uh, anti-AIDS program overseas. And th that gives us a tremendous platform uh, to work from in many, many countries because we support many health systems through that. But we're also building on top of things like our 
our polio programs, our polio vaccination programs, our maternal and child health programs, our malaria programs. So we have across the U.S. government all of these different health interventions that we that we maintain on an ongoing basis. And that provides an amazing foundation for us to then uh, build off of in order to support countries in vaccinating their people. So how much funding total has been allocated so far? So for vaccine, what we call vaccine delivery, that's basically what happens once a vaccine reaches a port or an airport all the way down to when it's uh, uh, injected into someone's arm. Uh, the U.S. government has allocated uh, about $1.7 billion at this point, and that is in turn facilitating the donation, the delivery of more than a billion doses, 1.2 billion doses of vaccine that the U.S. has committed to provide uh, and make available for the world. Uh, so it's really a, it, it's really a substantial uh, commitment so far, and we're currently uh, waiting for Congress, hoping that Congress will pass some additional funding so that we can take this this uh, next phase of the vaccine delivery effort forward. And how what what have been the challenges of actually getting those vaccines into the arms of people around the world? The biggest challenge right now in many uh, low income countries is one of vaccine access, and it kind of mirrors some of what we've seen in this country, where you have a certain amount, a certain proportion of the population that are very motivated to get the vaccine and have you know have jobs or lifestyles that enable them to take some time off to go get it. There are other um, you know in developing countries, much larger portions of the population, which have you know daily wage labor jobs that can't necessarily easily get to a clinic or don't live near a clinic. And so what we need to do now is move, help countries to move off of this kind of static fixed site distribution that forces someone to come to a clinic proactively and instead pushes the vaccine out into communities, out into markets, out into churches, out into um, schools and, and other places where people gather so that it is more easy to access on their terms rather than you know, forcing them to come to a, a clinic or, or something like that that might not be so easily accessible to them. So making it more accessible is the biggest challenge. Um, it, there are also some issues with hesitancy, like we like we see in this country. Generally no, I, I speaking, not as politicized. I was going to yeah. ask you, Jeremy. Sorry to cut you off about vaccine hesitancy and really misinformation about the vaccine. Yeah. It, look, it's a problem everywhere. I think what we see in in most other countries, it is not as polarized as it has become in this country. So the vaccine hesitancy is more, um, you know, more about uh, you. Know, poor scientific understanding or um, uh, you know just poor information it's not necessarily as tied up in kind of political dynamics as it sometimes is in this country but it's a real issue and um, I think what we're finding is that there are ways we can combat that so we've we've supported a really tremendous program in Ivory Coast that does real-time social media tracking of misinformation and when you know when that program detects misinformation spreading on uh, on whatsapp or on on twitter or in the local context that is then immediately fed into some of the counter misinformation messaging and that's pushed back out to to help combat that so that people have access to to, to real information but to real information that is Kind of tailored and targeted towards the rumors that are spreading at a given point in time. Jeremy, we're going to take a quick pause here and then we're going to continue our conversation. Welcome back. I'm here with Jeremy Conondike. He is the executive director of the USAID COVID-19 Task Force. Jeremy, can you share some success stories where USAID has really been able to move the needle and make a difference? Sure. So, 
you know, what we are, what we're finding as we're supporting countries with their vaccination efforts is when they have access to doses, when they have access to resources, and they have access to the kind of technical guidance and support um, that they require, they can make huge progress. And so we have seen that in, um, in quite a few countries a lot of the lower middle income countries, so the uh, countries like Vietnam or Pakistan or Bangladesh that have pretty capable health systems, they've made tremendous progress over the past half a year. As they have gotten access to the doses that they've needed, um, they have, with some technical support from us and a lot, of, uh, a lot of donations of doses, they have reached very high coverage levels in their populations. And they're beginning to now approach the, the levels of coverage that we have here and in other high income countries. The, the next phase is really supporting those countries that don't quite have that level of, of resources and uh, providing them with the resources that they can then take their vaccination efforts forward. And so what we've seen in, in a number of countries in, in Africa over the past few months is, again, when they get that combination of uh, of support, of targeted support, they can make great strides. And so in, in Ghana, for example, Ghana has now uh, achieved uh, one shot uh, cover first shot coverage to about half its population. Um, Uganda, likewise, with a, with the help uh, of a big push from um, uh, of U.S. government support last fall, was able to get coverage of more than half their adult population, uh, r rising from about uh, fourteen percent to uh, almost fifty percent in the course of of just over a month with a with a with a big push of support. So we know that this is possible, and what we're trying to do now is to take some of those examples, uh, that, those proof of concept examples, and and deploy the resources to really scale that up across all the countries that that continue to need it. And and that's why we're in the in the process of working with Congress to try to secure some additional funds for this, so we can take those. From being a few examples that show the proof of concept to really blossom that into a program that can help to vaccinate the whole world. So, Jeremy, how do you define success, though, and and at what point can this program be ended? Well, you know, the the World Health Organization has set a, an aspirational global target of seventy percent population coverage in every country, and and that's a good target. It's a hard target. And in some countries, it's an aspirational target. We're still at about 65% even in this country, but we're continuing to plug away at it. Um, so, you know, we want to support countries to, to get as close to that goal as they can. That is what we'll work towards. Um, but also importantly, they, it's, it's critical to, to target those who are most at risk. So it's not just any 70%, it's the right 70%. So we wanna help countries to target uh, elderly populations, uh, people who are immunocompromised, as I talked about earlier, both because they're at the highest risk of a severe disease outcome, but also because they are the highest risk population for uh, incubating new variants. Um, also ensuring that countries can support their frontline workers, their healthcare workers, and other you know, other populations, other people who may face uh, elevated exposure to the, to the virus. I wonder how you pick the countries that you're going to work in, because you know, you'll have to prioritize. You don't have unlimited resources. Yeah, what we're what we're doing right now is is trying to support those and target those 
that are the most ready to accelerate. So we're trying to help countries accelerate their their rates of uptake now that um, there are sufficient vaccines available to anyone who wants them. And so where we see a country that is showing a lot of political will, a lot of leadership from the government. So a country like Ghana, where the, where the president has been really engaged um, and, uh, and really willing to do what's required uh, to deploy the health system, to work with the population, to show leadership. Uh, a country like Uganda, where the Minister of Health has been going out to you know, district by district to launch local vaccination campaigns, you know, that's a, a strong sh show of support from the government. Um, you know, a country like that, then we can come in, provide support to that, come in behind that government leadership, provide support to them and really make real progress. Jeremy, are other countries donating vaccines? I wonder how your numbers compare to other countries. So the U.S. is definitely uh, leading the way in terms of in terms of countries. We have donated more doses globally than any other uh, any other individual country. But we are seeing a lot of other countries step up. So the Europeans uh, have have donated uh, many doses as well. Um, the U.K. has donated doses. Uh, um, Australia is donating. You know, we're, we're seeing a real, um, a real kind of snowball effect in a positive way of increasing donations, increasing support, to the point that really dose supply is not the problem anymore. Uh, there, are, there is plenty of supply available to any country that wants it. The challenge now is helping these uh, country health systems that often are quite weak and and that have never had to vaccinate their whole adult population before, to to take that next step. You know, I hate to mention the next pandemic, but what is USAID doing to be better prepared when the next global pandemic hits? What have you learned from this one? I, we've learned so much. I, you, I think we will be we will be working through the lessons of this for a long time. I think a couple of that stand out for me. One is the importance of early warning and early action. Uh, the earlier that. Uh, the earlier that that action is taken to protect the population, the the more that can be done. It, it becomes harder and harder to slow the spread of a virus the longer you wait it, and and um, to begin to do so. Another is the importance of trust, and we've seen this again. This is not unique to to any single country. We see this in every country that when there is trust in government, trust in institutions, people will be more willing to, to abide by public health protections. They will be more willing to get vaccines. And that's something, frankly, we've seen in many, many outbreaks. Uh, I worked several Ebola outbreaks in the past. Um, we've seen, even with the Ebola vaccine, that you know, a, a disease as terrifying as Ebola, um, as terrifying at an individual level as Ebola, it, it was at hard at times in Eastern Congo to persuade people to take the vaccines and working through trusted local uh, leaders, trusted local voices that could be validators for an unfamiliar message was really, really critical. So thinking about trust and communication as core elements of public health. All right. Well, Jeremy, appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Coming next, how 3D printing technology is making a big difference for veterans' health. We'll be right back. 3D printing technology has been around for a while, but at the VA, printing an actual model of a patient's organ will help improve surgeries and healthcare for vets. Dr. Beth Ripley is the VHA 3D Printing Network in Initiative Enterprise Lead. Dr. Ripley, welcome to the program. Thank you, thanks for having me. So spell out the benefits of 3D printing in the healthcare field and particularly how you're using it at the VA. 
So 3D printing is really uh, a very incredible technology that puts the power of creation into healthcare providers' hands and the veterans as well. So it's a technology that allows you to fabricate small batch products at the point of care, which means in the hospital. So this means we can do things like make a special brace, a special prosthetic, a special assistive technology device for a veteran. We can make specialized hearing aids for veterans, and we can even take a veteran's own anatomy, let's say their heart, and translate it from two-dimensional imaging into a three-dimensional model that the patient and the surgeon can hold in their hands, look at, and decide exactly what the best course of action is for treatment. So really, it's, it's a way of personalizing care for our veterans. How did you get this idea to take a patient's MRIs or x-rays and print a 3D model from it? You know, this all started uh, in a dark room, actually. So I'm a radiologist, um, and radiologists are the physicians that are um, tasked with looking at all of the imaging that patients get and trying to take all of those thousands of images and describe it in a few words. And what we realized is it, it can be really hard to do that. And oftentimes a surgeon comes down to that dark room to look at those images with you a couple times. And you realize, you know, you can say a lot with words, but they say a picture is worth a thousand words and a model is worth even more. So instead of us looking and then translating and putting into words and then, you know, sending it off in a report, being able to actually take that object, um, put it into three dimensional space and hand it to the surgeon just really improves the amount of communication that we can get from it. So it's sort of a no-brainer in that way. So where are we in the ability to print actual organs that can be used as a transplant? That is a great question. So um, we are not there yet, but we are getting there. And in fact, in VA, we have a, a special project, we call it VA BioBone, where we are working actively to understand and create uh, a 3D printed living bone. And so this would be the first use cases for veterans that have um, chronic infections or tumors of the jaw, the mandible, um, where a piece of the bone needs to be removed. Right now you have to do a pretty long surgery to take bone from somewhere else in the body. What we wanna do is 3D print that bone uh, de novo. And so we're in early studies. We actually just had a paper published on this and we're hoping to get this into the clinic in the next three to five years. You know, there had been issues of getting enough PPE during the height of the pandemic. And you were asked if you could start printing masks. What was your reaction? <laughs> At first it was, it was, I looked like this, right? What, what do you mean masks? Um, so this was really early on um, and you know, you, the disbelief or, or the questioning goes away pretty darn fast in, in this field. So, you know, you, you take about 15 minutes to think, oh, really? And then you say, okay, let's get down to business. And so, you know, we got down to business with 3D printing a mask um, and turned it from the first question to an actual um, mask that could be used for surgical level uh, interactions in 10 days. So it was quite a feat. You know, there's a lot of innovation happening in this field in the private sector. So what are the benefits of this kind of innovation work happening in the government as opposed to the private sector? It's a fantastic question. And the answer is both are needed. And even better is when we work together. So in the case of the pandemic, 
We pulled together uh, multiple government agencies, FDA, NIH, um, and of course, VHA, but also with uh, Partner America Makes and multiple uh, partners out in the private sector so that we can bring the best of both worlds together. And we think that when government can work side by side with the private sector, again, we can accelerate things. We each have our own um, understanding and, and benefits that we bring to the table. But when we are together, uh, we really can accelerate that, not only for veterans, but then for the entire American public. What are the benefits that, uh, that the government brings to the table? There are a few things that are really important that the government and specifically VHA brings to the table. We are the largest healthcare organization within the United States. And just by our sheer number, we have so much talent, um, so much you know energy and so much experience that we can really bring to bear when we're thinking about how to make new products. We also have in VHA and in many of our government uh, sister organizations, research and development embedded within the fabric of the organization as well. So having the physicians, the patients, the research, the development and the innovations all under one roof um, really is, is that, that special, um, special sauce that the, the government brings to bear in innovating for products. Well, what's next? Where do you see this technology, this field going? So we're really interested now in understanding what the benefits are of bringing many, many manufacturing into the hospital walls. Um, and we really want to explore what happens, what do we unlock when we bring that into the hospital and give our patients and our frontline providers access to that. And so what you're gonna see in VA over the next several years is us trying to bring that technology to every veteran, um, every VA medical center, whether it's actually in that physical medical center or whether we've digitally connected it to a nearby site. And I think you're gonna see just a groundswell of, of new innovative products coming out of VHA as a result of that. All right, well, Dr. Ripley, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Yeah, absolutely, thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include 
uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.